0: Thank you. Thank you for having me, and you can
1: never be too Jewish. Shalom, and welcome to the Too Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Dr. Joel Hoffman, author, speaker, translator, and scholar, discussing good and evil in ancient texts. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio Programs and Podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish.
2: Shalom. Last week here on 2Jewish, I gave a bit of historical background about the origins and development of Reform and Conservative Judaism in America. Today we'll bring that story up to date on both movements, but I should note that both modern expressions of Judaism— started in Germany back in the 19th century, where the recently emancipated German Jews chose to express their newfound freedom by transforming their worship experiences, their prayer books, their whole approach to Judaism. Reform Judaism is the very first modern movement, starting in the 1810s, followed also in Germany by modern orthodoxy in the 1840s, and then what was initially called Positive Historical Judaism in the 1850s. That title proved less than catchy, so the name was changed to Conservative Judaism. When those German Jews migrated to America in the wake of revolutions in the early and middle part of the 1800s, they brought Reform Judaism with them. Fairly quickly, it became the dominant form of Jewish expression in the small Jewish community of 19th century America. By the late 1800s, a new wave of mostly Eastern European Jews migrated to America. They had been Orthodox in the old country, but within a generation of living in the United States, most of them moved to a more Americanized form of Judaism and, well, became conservative Jews. Reform Judaism, then in its classical Reform era, had too much English in its service, too much decorum and formality for Eastern European Jews, and just not enough tradition. It didn't feel hamish, homelike, comfortable. Unlike the classical Reform services, conservative services were much like Orthodox services, just with an English translation printed in the prayer book the Siddur, not that that was ever used much in the actual service, and men and women could sit together as they could not in almost all Orthodox synagogues. There were other differences. Until the 1960s, and in many congregations even the 70s, the Reform Movement rejected Bar and Bat Mitzvah, well, Bat Mitzvah was later still anyway, in favor of a group confirmation service when kids were like 15. And while conservative Jews might not have been actually observing the rules of Jewish law, in theory they were supposed to still be doing so. Not so for reformed Jews. Historically, the greatest growth for both movements, reform and conservative Judaism, in the U.S. took place in the decades immediately after World War II. Conservative Judaism was the largest movement in America from the 1930s until about 1980. It particularly benefited after World War II from a rule change. The conservative movement gave permission to drive a car to Shabbat services, something that is, of course, forbidden in Orthodox Judaism. That seemingly minor alteration in tradition made it possible for the rapidly growing Jewish population of the even faster-growing American suburbs to drive to temple. Soon, the baby boom filled both conservative and reform synagogues, religious schools, and camps with young families. The future for both movements was bright, and growth continued for both into the 1970s. But by then the baby boom ended. All those kids began to grow up, and the new boomer generation started to do something that their parents, first and second generation immigrants to America, did not typically do. That is, the boomer generation started to marry non-Jewish spouses. Now, in the conservative movement, this reality was resisted fiercely. It seemed impossible for many years to attend a conservative Shabbat service in a temple and not hear a conservative rabbi give a sermon condemning intermarriage. This, of course, did not slow the growth of intermarriage at all, and it certainly did not endear conservative Judaism to the ever-larger number of intermarried couples and families. Jews who married non-Jewish spouses, predominantly Christian ones, simply felt uncomfortable in conservative congregations. They left for the much more welcoming Reform synagogues. Reform temples, which had always accepted interfaith couples unofficially, but warmly, received an influx of intermarried families. And as the percentage of all American Jewish marriages reached first 50% and then edged up to like two-thirds, it was clear where intermarried couples would feel comfortable and welcomed, that is, in reform synagogues. If the hopeless fight against intermarriage was the prevailing topic in conservative congregations, the issue of social justice was the main focus in the 60s and 70s in, well, most reformed congregations. From the civil rights movements of the 50s and early 60s, to the Vietnam War protests of the late 60s and early 70s, to the causes of the environment and immigration and farm workers and every other popular movement for social change— Reform congregations often were intensely political in their ethos. This attracted young Jews who were highly motivated by the causes that captivated their generation. The conservative movement lagged behind on all of these issues. There were two other issues that helped reform Judaism in America and helped stymie the conservative movement. The first was ordaining women rabbis and accepting women cantors. The Reform Movement, over the objections of some of its older male faculty at Hebrew Union College, ordained the first female rabbis in the early 1970s. After much debate and a fair amount of hostility and division and some splintering of the movement, conservative Judaism did follow suit but not until, well, over a decade later. This continued a pattern deeply detrimental to the conservative movement's enrollment. In fact, it contributed to its loss of momentum and then steady shrinking and loss of membership, a shrinkage that has continued unabated for, oh, about 40 years now. The final issue that tripped up the conservative movement was whether to accept gay and lesbian Jews and, in particular, to allow openly gay or lesbian candidates to study and become ordained rabbis. The reform movement accepted LGBTQ members freely started ordaining openly gay and lesbian rabbis back in the 1980s. By 1990, it had accepted them fully. It took the conservative movement 16 more challenging years to sort of accept gay and lesbian rabbis. Too little, too late for many LGBTQ plus Jews to feel welcome in conservative synagogues. Basically, you could count on the Reform Jewish movement and its synagogues to embrace the changing political causes of the day and the social changes that were transforming America, and the conservative movement to resist those changes stubbornly for 10 or 15 years before finally embracing them too. But too late for many, even most of their younger members who had by then essentially left the building. Interestingly, by the time the latter stages of the 20th century rolled around, the 80s and the 90s, in terms of the actual experience of being a non-Orthodox Jew in America, well, there might not be that much to choose from between the movements, especially if you didn't go to Shabbat services often, as most American Jews simply didn't. Now, if you did go, say, to a bar mitzvah or a high holy day services or just any old Shabbat, There were significant differences, but the reform movement of the 70s, then the 80s, and then the 90s kept adding more Hebrew, more singing, more traditional rituals and elements. And so the overall experience of belonging to a reformer conservative temple, well, might not really feel all that different to you personally, with one major exception. Reform synagogues were, by this time, much more open and relaxed and better at being you know, welcoming and warm. No longer the so-called frozen chosen of the days of classical reform. Reform temples were easier places to connect and feel comfortable and welcomed. Conservative synagogues tended to be clickier, a little more closed, a little more suspicious of newcomers. And so the conservative movement steadily lost congregants to reform congregations. But... It also lost members to the newly energized Baal Teshuva movement in orthodoxy, the returnees to orthodox practice, mostly younger people, which took hold in the latter part of the 20th century and has continued into the 21st. Those members, especially younger ones, who had embraced the conservative movement's emphasis on ritual and practice, sometimes even often decided that to continue to adopt even more personal practices and to embrace an orthodox lifestyle, they would end up leaving the conservative movement, and so they did. Now, while the conservative movement was struggling and shrinking in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the reform movement just kept growing and flourishing until suddenly it didn't. When the U.S. financial crisis of 2007-8 came along, the reform movement and its synagogues faced a kind of day of reckoning. It wasn't so much that people didn't believe that they were reformed Jews anymore. It's just that they didn't want to pay dues to Reform congregations. If they wanted to just do Jewish things, like go to Shabbat or Tat Shabbat, go to High Holy Day services, have their kids bar and bat mitzvah, get a rabbi to do a wedding or a funeral... Well, in a changing financial climate that was a little tighter, they started to reevaluate the whole model of belonging to a synagogue. They didn't attend regularly. They used it just for life cycle events or maybe just high holy days. Many of them decided that they could go shopping on the market for Jewish services, see if they'd get a better deal paying just for what they actually were going to use, a kind of fee-for-service model. And that meant that membership in Reform synagogues began to shrink also. In general, Americans stopped joining organizations just because their parents had, or because they were there before. And they stopped staying members of organizations just because, well, maybe they'd belonged in the past. Synagogues weren't really organized as fundraising organizations per se, I mean they didn't raise money, but They discovered that if they wanted to survive in a world in which membership didn't mean what it used to, well, they were going to have to compete on the philanthropic trail with universities, hospitals, symphonies, all the other pure fundraising organizations out there. And, of course, they'd have to compete with fundraising entities like Jewish federations or Jewish philanthropies that provided no useful discernible service, but also didn't support synagogues in any meaningful way. There's another important factor that plays into all of this stuff. There's been a sense that American Judaism has moved into the post-denominational phase of its development. That is, people no longer genuinely care if they're labeled Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, Renewal, or just Jewish. This has been a change that's been coming for a long time. I remember articles about it and important Jewish thinkers and leaders discussing this back when I was in rabbinical school myself, which was 30 years ago. We are certainly seeing the impact of this on the conservative movement now as it fades out of the American Jewish scene. We are also seeing some of this in the reform movement, which colleagues of mine recently said at a conference I attended is too big to fail. But... I don't think that's any more true of reform than it was true when people said it about the conservative movement 30 years ago. The conservative movement is certainly failing now. I don't know if this clarifies the major differences between reform and conservative movements in Judaism and their respective trends here in America these days. There is a lot of intelligent effort and Jewish creativity into finding new ways for non-orthodox synagogues to succeed and to flourish in the 2020s and beyond. Some of that will undoubtedly bloom in surprisingly effective ways in the future. And I promise I'll share some thoughts on all of those trends next week, right here on Too Jewish. For now, to play us in this morning, here's one of my favorite renditions of the hymn that welcomes the Shabbat bride, L'Chad as sung by the Moroccan Chazan Aaron Ben-Susan, from a great recording put together by... Cantor's Assembly, my organization of the conservative movement. That was L'Chad from Cantor Aaron Ben-Susan. A lot of fun. Our guest this morning, Dr. Joel Hoffman, is an author, scholar, speaker, and translator. He's here in southern Arizona. We'll be at Congregation Beit Simchad 12111 North La on Monday night, February 5th at 7 p.m. to discuss good and evil. It's free. It's a great talk. Please come. He's also here to talk about good and evil in profoundly ancient texts. Find out why they still have a great deal to teach us about right and wrong when we come back in a moment, right here on To jewish The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation Known
3: for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve, Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals reform conservative and orthodox—is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection tradition and serenity evergreen mortuary and cemetery offers the best to the community and to you call 520-888-7470 to speak to a family advisor at evergreen call 520-888-7470
2: we are delighted to welcome the two jewish art guests this morning Dr. Joel Hoffman is an esteemed translator, teacher, author, and speaker. He'll be here in southern Arizona doing some scholar in residence work on uh, both for Jews and uh, interfaith settings. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish.
4: Thank you. What a treat to be here.
2: Nice to have you back. So I want to talk about um, good and evil because we like light topics here on (laughs) 2Jewish. You have a very interesting take on uh, some of the ancient stories. Um, Tell us a little bit about that.
4: Well, I would start by saying that the reason I look at ancient wisdom is that it's time-tested. The works that I'm looking at took a thousand years to develop. Imagine what you and I could accomplish if we spent a thousand years on it.
2: Oh my goodness.
4: Modern psychology is like 150 years old, maybe, and it's reasonably advanced. So you take that and multiply it by seven, and that's what the ancients had. They spent a thousand years looking at the human condition, and then they wrote about what they found. So these ancient works are, in a sense, master guides to what it's like to be a human, and they both ask and answer why people suffer.
2: So uh, let's get not only that question, but let's get some answers. Why, Why do people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do we see injustice everywhere?
4: You should mention that because the, the book you're, you're quoting is not actually called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People. No, no, called, no
2: I mean, yeah, it's I know, wh- I know you When know. Bad it, Things Happen to Good
4: People. That's I mean, right. Yeah. It's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And so many people, either consciously, as you just did, or unconsciously, change it into why because they're craving an answer. And the answer comes from the ancients who spent a thousand years looking at it. I would also say, unfortunately, the answers are not one-liners. And this is a particular plague in modernity, where people try and figure out their lives by going on Instagram, or on Twitter, or on Facebook, or reading one-liners. One-liners like, well, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, frequently followed by "deary." That's obnoxious, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. When I hear that, I, I... frequently think, well, let's see if you can handle a punch in the face. That's a hurtful way of explaining things. It's overly simplistic, and it minimizes what people are going through. So the answers are not going to be one-liners. They're not going to be simple. But one of the great things about what they did in antiquity is they boiled it down into something at least digestible. It's not a treatise. It's not a tome. It's not like reading Kant. It's not going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to learn. It is the kind of thing that you can go through in about 45 minutes which is why I'm coming to Tucson to talk about it.
2: (laughs) That's a great explanation, and uh, we will dig much more. By the way, I totally agree with you about, oh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Yes, sometimes you have more than you can handle. Exactly. Completely terrible answer. We will talk much more with Dr. Joel Hoffman when we come back here on Too Jewish in just a moment. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina Foothills celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes and events. This winter, established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive Congregation Northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us for Shabbat services. Come in person or go to our Facebook page. Find out all about our services at Beit Simcha tucson.org. tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520 276 5675. Religious schools available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, Barnbad Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation, and Teen programs. Celebrating our fifth year now in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events open to everyone. Friday night services are at 6.30 p.m. Join us for Shabbat evening celebration services with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. I'll be talking about my trip to Israel if you come soon. Saturday, Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m. Preceded at 9 o'clock by Torah study, all with me, leading it all. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. You can watch our services there. Our Adult Education Academy classes and our Torah study are live and on Zoom. You can access those by going to the website, Beit SimchaTucson.org. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school, Torah teichs programs, Bar and Bot Mitzvah, confirmation high school programs, rich array of Adult Education Academy courses taught live and on Zoom, social justice programming and of course all of our services in person and on facebook go to bait simchatuson.org b-e-i-t-s-i-m-c-h-a-tuson.org or call 520-276-5675 that's 520-276-5675 join me rabbi sam kohan in the fastest growing jewish community in all of southern arizona if you've got a question, comment, compliment, or criticism about Too Jewish at fell please email us at toojewishradio 18 at gmail.com. That's T O O Jewish Radio 18 at gmail. Or visit our website, Too Jewish You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Stories, very popular Jewish podcasts, Top 10 in America, Corner Moment magazine over. 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review to jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. Tom, you recently took um, one of your trips all the way around the world. I've only done that once, you many times. Anyway, um, one Still of the Still recovering from the jet lag that caused, by the way. No kidding. Um— I actually always feel like going in one direction, you don't get the same jet lag experience until the very end, and then you just get clobbered. Um, No, but I had four
0: overnight flights, two of which were on consecutive nights. So I was both behind in terms of sleep and always changing like major amounts of time, like a 12-hour time difference or a 14-hour time difference. That's very different
2: from a two- or three-hour time difference. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely true. Um, Beyond the physical, um, one of the things you mentioned uh, was not talking about the situation in Israel all the time because you were places where it wasn't the first thing everybody talked about, but uh, a rather profound observation about it, which uh, I will allow you to relate. But I want to note something, which is um, after October 7th, it took me personally several weeks to kind of get to the point where I could process or even experience any feelings of sympathy for the people of Gaza who were not Hamas and were getting bombed, because I was so distraught about what happened in Israel. Um, I think that the fact is, that situation is flat out terrible and has been, I mean, I I guess I guess it's just bad for everybody, but maybe you can uh, explore it a little bit. Yeah, well so you've been to Israel enough
0: times to know that Israelis always refer to whatever political tensions of the day are, whether it's an intifada or the judicial coup or whatever as hamatzav. Hamatzav, the yeah. situation. Yeah. So everybody always wants to talk about hamatzav, and one of the things I found so relaxing and refreshing about these two weeks around the world was Hamatsav didn't come up even once and you know I was with Americans and French and Serbs and Russians and people from all over the world Australians in particular Singaporeans not one person brought up Hamatsav and it was just such a refreshing break for me (laughs) yeah um I I can't tell you it was a mechayah, it was was a rest. It was the most restful thing about that vacation of incessant movement and travel and hassles at airports and whatever, but no discussion of the matzav. And then I thought back to, I have a good friend who happens to be a distant relative from St. Louis who is the head of NPR in Israel and spends a lot of time in Gaza and is fluent in Arabic and all that. And he, very early on, like on October 10th, said Tom, everyone is a victim. And that's pithy, but it's also true. Yeah. Um, people in Gaza living under the tyranny of Hamas are victims. There were victims even before this armed conflict started. They were exploited, and resources were diverted to big bank accounts in Switzerland and Qatar that could have gone to feed and educate and provide health care for these poor 2 million human beings. So, yes, I mean, it's a tragedy all the way around, but it's important, I think, not to lose sight of everyone's humanity. There's a core Jewish belief, I think you'll agree and validate this that everybody has created B'Tselem in the image of God and that all people have some spark of godliness within them so in that sense everybody's a victim and I just hope that 2024 brings better tidings and more peace and more humanity to that entire region
2: From your mouth to God's ears, Tom. Thanks so much. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke, the Wheat Jewish Humor your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Rachel and her husband Max are in their local restaurant. As usual, within minutes of taking their seats, Rachel starts to bother the waiter. "'Vader,' she says, "'please, to turn up the air conditioning. You know, I can't stand the hot atmosphere.'" Five minutes later, she calls him over again. "'Vader,' she says, "'now it's freezing in here. Please, to turn down the air conditioning. It's too cold.'" Five minutes after that, she wants it turned up again. She's getting too hot. "'Vader, now it's boiling like chicken soup. Please, turn down the air conditioning.'" The food arrives at the table, and Rachel says, Again, it's too cold. Vader, please turn up the air conditioning. A guy sitting at the next table can't help but notice that the patience of the waiter is amazing, and he calls him over. Waiter, he says, you are incredible. Why don't you just throw her out of the restaurant? Oh, we don't really mind, says the waiter, because not only do we believe the customer is always right, but also... This restaurant doesn't have air conditioning. That was the Old Jewish Joke of the Week special feature of two Jewish You Should Live and Be Well, Just For You. And now a word of Torah. This week we read the portion of Yitro, the great moment of the revelation at Mount Sinai which includes the climactic events of the Ten Commandments and the Theophany of Sinai, the most direct revelation to human beings of all in Jewish tradition. It's a testament to brevity and concision, these ten statements, just a few paragraphs. These few words have become the essence of Western religious experience ever since they were received, our most complete connection to God. But in today's world, the concept of revelation is a complex and challenging one for most modern people. Do you personally believe in revelation at all? That is, that God revealed or reveals a greater power, a will, a plan to us directly? Skeptics, which includes so many of us, can highlight a series of improbabilities in this central tale of the epical Jewish narrative of revelation— Are we to really believe that at Mount Sinai, God revealed God's own essence to us directly? That somehow in some supernatural way, a group of Israelite freed slaves communicated directly with a being much greater than themselves, and that it only happened once, more than 3,000 years ago? Are we also to believe that not only did the Israelites think God connected with them, but also God spoke actual words? And our ancestors not only understood them, but committed them to memory. Clearly, our tradition teaches that there have been moments of overwhelming connection to God. And the greatest of these is this Mahmud Har Sinai, the event of standing at Sinai, which most people believe took place if it happened at all 3,200 years ago. Our ancestors believed God communicated directly with them that a certain covenant, a moral contract, was created in that spectacular moment. There are many ways to view Revelation. While the text of Yitro sees the experience of Sinai as a unique one, filled with dramatic pronouncements, lightning, thunder, earthquake, and so on, Jewish tradition has always taught that each of us stood at Sinai, including every generation of Jews not yet born. In other words, we are all participants in revelation in our own way. Just as we all must see ourselves as having come out of Egypt as freed slaves, so we all must come to understand our relationship with God directly. Revelation, God's will revealed to us in our lives, must be given to us, accepted by each of us personally. Is this revelation idea the idea that God somehow communicates with us directly, appropriate for you or me, well, I think that's going to be a personal decision. Perhaps the best way to look at it is God is revealed to us in the holiness that we're able to touch in our own lives. Revelation simply means knowing God is present by experiencing beauty, inspiration, creativity, caring, and especially love. May we each be blessed with the experience of revelation in our own lives in whatever form it comes, this week and every week. When we return in a moment, our guest, Joel Hoffman, will share what is remarkable about the understanding of good and evil in ancient texts. He'll be here at Congregation Beit Simcha on Monday night, February 5th at 7 o'clock. He explores on Too Jewish what is most challenging about translating classic works and much more. Find out when he comes back in just a moment on Too Jewish.
1: We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary.
2: Shalom. Israel suffered its worst one-day loss of life since the October 7th atrocities last week when 24 Israelis died in fighting in Gaza. Hamas Palestinian terrorists managed to collapse a building by firing RPG rocket-propelled grenades at neighboring buildings in Khan Yunus, causing the death of 21 Israelis. Three more died fighting against Hamas Palestinian terrorists in central and southern Gaza on the same day. While we somehow think the death of soldiers is normal in war, there is nothing normal about losing sons, brothers, fathers and husbands, mothers, sisters and wives in their teens, 20s, 30s and 40s. Over 220 Israeli soldiers, men and women, have died fighting against Hamas Palestinian terrorists since October 7th. Several hundred active duty and reserve soldiers were killed on October 7th itself. Look, everyone in Israel has friends, relatives, or direct family members, and certainly friends of friends who've died in the Gaza War. Israel is a small country, tight, community-based Unlike the American military, nearly everyone serves in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and continues in a reserve role with the same units for many years, doing miluim, reserve duty, annually. The losses in this war will be felt for many years to come. There is ever-increasing pressure on the Israeli government to try to get the remaining hostages out. Over 130 people have been held for nearly four months now in brutal captivity by Hamas-Palestinian terrorists in the tunnel network of Gaza. But negotiations to free the Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian criminal prisoners held in Israeli jails while a ceasefire of some duration is in effect, those negotiations have stalled. Hamas insists on a permanent ceasefire that leaves the terrorists in control of Gaza, Israel has agreed to a one-month ceasefire in exchange of all hostages for prisoners, with humanitarian aid allowed into Gaza in a much larger way than it has been. Although Qatar and Egypt have led efforts to negotiate a deal, Hamas has remained intransigent. As you might expect from murderous terrorists who realize that the moment the last Israeli hostage is freed, their tunnel network will be annihilated and their leadership in Gaza liquidated, well, Israel has accused the absentee top terrorists of Hamas, who live in cushioned comfort and luxurious style, and the United Arab Emirates in Qatar, of using the Palestinian civilians of Gaza as brutalized pawns, putting them in the line of fire, of forced migration, of disease, while they enjoy the fruits of international aid funds in distant lands. These absentee Hamas lords of terror have refused to compromise to free the remaining Israeli hostages, preferring to see their own civilians destroyed. It is a sad state of affairs. The cowards of Hamas Palestinian terrorists bringing destruction to their own people, while they all drink tea in the UAE. In other news, Northwestern universities join Cornell on the list of important colleges that are being investigated by the U.S. Department of Education for anti-Semitism. The growing number of these investigations demonstrates the moral failure of so many of our institutions of higher learning to protect Jewish students in the same way they protect all other minorities from hate speech and actions. In fact, while so many universities have been focused on preventing even microaggressions, however defined, against whoever they define as being of race, racial, ethnic, or sexual orientation minority – They have frankly condoned openly anti-Semitic speech and action against Jewish students, especially those who support Israel. It is finally being addressed, one hopes forcefully. And that's the news of Jews around the world. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish Art Guests this morning. Dr. Joel Hoffman is a prominent teacher, translator, speaker, thinker, author of a multitude of books. Um, He is the uh, award-winning translator of my People's Prayer Book, which won a National Jewish Book Award. Uh, Wonderful series, still very valuable. Um, And his... In the beginning, a short history of the Hebrew language has been selling for, I don't know, 18 years or so. It seems like a very Jewish number. Um, we started talking, uh, one of the topics that you'll be addressing when you're here, about good and evil in antiquity. Um, I had a, a wonderful professor in rabbinical school who said, uh, I remember her saying, I don't know why anybody likes the book of Proverbs. Um, they're really preachy and mostly not true. Um but but that's not exactly right, is it? uh give us a little bit of um insight about the wisdom of the ancients in these areas
4: well let's let's expand it beyond the book of proverbs. I understand why why people might be frustrated with proverbs. they are dare i say a little uneven, but there's a lot of wisdom in it. I think the value of ancient wisdom comes from two different facts one is the amount of time they spent investigating things you know people in antiquity were not less smart than we are now they were just as smart as we are now i mean obviously you know some people were more smart some people were less but there's a modern sort of i don't know what to call it a um a myth, or a modern prejudice, I guess, that the ancients were stupid because they lived a long time ago. They didn't know as much as we do now, but they were just as good at thinking. And precisely because they didn't know as much, they spent more time thinking about the things that they could. They didn't spend time thinking about astrophysics, or about biology, or about... Virology,
3: uh, I'm afraid,
2: absolutely.
4: But they did spend time thinking about the human condition, because that's what they could observe and that's what they could figure out. And they spent, as I said, a thousand years doing it. That's the first fact. That is incredible investigation went into these ancient works. The second fact is they have stood the test of time. There are other ancient documents that we don't read anymore, because they're not around anymore. You know, there is a class of professional atheists. Uh, Some of them live in England. uh, One of them is uh, Dawkins. I'm forgetting their names. That's Um, okay.
2: I've uh, I've read them because my oldest son, when he was a teenager, was really into these guys. And I would read them. And what I discovered was they didn't really have a theology of atheism. They were just really angry about how they were raised, like every one of them. It was fascinating.
4: They are, yeah, Richard Dawkins, I couldn't remember his first name, I apologize to Mr. Dawkins, who may have a title, maybe it's Dr. Dawkins, I don't have to apologize to him twice. Uh, (laughs) He's the author of The God Delusion, and he's uh, what I call a professional atheist. He makes a living saying that religion is wrong, but he doesn't really seem to understand the value of religion. He does understand the value of survival of the fittest. Uh, which to me means that he owes the world an explanation. If he believes in survival of the fittest, well, certainly one of the fittest books that has survived is the Bible. If the Bible is still around 2,000 years later, that's a pretty good run for a book. You know, you mentioned that my book has been out 18 years. I can't even believe that. 18 years for a book from NYU Press? That's huge. Yes. You know, I never expected that. The Bible's been around for 2,000 years. If... If Dawkins doesn't think there's any particular merit to the Bible, he has to explain why it's still around, because he believes in survival of the fittest. By his own reckoning, this should be the fittest book around. So there is value to the Bible, but it's not what most people think it is. Most people think that the value of the Bible only lies in its connection with God. God was the metaphor they used in many cases, but they were trying to convey lessons about daily life. And once you get past sort of the the bad translations, which is how I spent a significant portion of my career, and then the misconceptions about what kind of literature it is, then you find that there's some really, really good stuff there. I'll give you a a metaphor, I'll give you an analogy. Um, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. We all know about Aesop's fables. We all know about The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Now just in case anyone doesn't, it's about a boy who uh, is watching the sheep and uh, in a village somewhere, and for amusement he cries wolf, and all the elders come, and there's no wolf, and he cries wolf again, all the elders come, and then there is actually a wolf, and he cries wolf, and nobody comes. And There's a moral behind that, that if you lie, then people won't believe you. Now, if someone looks at that story and says, well, that story doesn't apply to me because I live in Manhattan and there are no wolves, they have completely misunderstood the point. And, and, and also, started, by
2: the way, misunderstood Manhattan, I believe.
4: Yeah, that's actually true. They've also misunderstood Manhattan. That's a fair point. Equally, uh, if they start asking, well, what particular genus of wolf is this? They have misunderstood the point. The wolf there is part of an allegory, which is how people wrote in antiquity. And somehow, when it comes to Aesop's fables, everybody gets it. Nobody says, oh, my God, I don't believe in, like, um." wolves you know coming by or another example the tortoise and the hare you know you have a a tortoise and a hare which is what i call a turtle and a rabbit and the turtle being slow and the rabbit being fast and they end up running a race um and at the beginning of Aesop's fable the um turtle challenges the rabbit to a race now what the rabbit doesn't say is oh my god a talking turtle And what modern readers don't do is say, well, I don't believe in the tortoise and the hare because I don't believe animals can talk. Yet, when it comes to the Bible, people say, I don't believe in the Bible because I don't believe animals can talk. It's it's an unbelievable blind spot when it comes to this particular bit of ancient wisdom that causes many, many people to miss the entire point. Going back to the tortoise and the hare, the point is that rather than having uh, to rely on pure talent, you can also rely on sort of stick-to-itiveness. Now, there's a modern book written about that, and it took a whole book to figure it out. It ended up being a New York Times bestseller. It's called Grit uh, by Angela Duckworth, The Power of, I think, Passion and Perseverance. Angela Duckworth wrote a whole book, which was a New York Times bestseller, basically saying the same thing that Aesop said in one short fable. That's the power of ancient wisdom. If we took the ancient fable seriously, we wouldn't need the whole book called Grit. We would already know what they knew 2,500 years ago, and the same is true in many, many, many realms. They took this stuff. They spent a thousand years figuring it out. They boiled it down to its essence. They figured out how to explain it. And we know that it's valuable because it has survived the test of time.
2: So in um, translation, and I think it's important to to have new translations come out, I don't know, periodically, right? Because we use language differently in every generation. And the generations seem to change quicker and quicker now. Um When you approach a text, a classic text, how do you, even knowing, say, of course, Hebrew, as well as you know Hebrew, how do you avoid the possibility of being influenced by all of the traditional translations that have gone before?
4: Wow, is that a good question. And you put your finger on one of the most difficult challenges in Bible translation. There are so many translations out there, and it is so easy to assume that the words mean what we have always thought that they mean. Um, I am not able to completely put it aside, unfortunately. I do my best to ignore the translations and look at the Hebrew only, or the Greek in the case of the New Testament. Um and that frequently brings me to some very surprising results. When I was writing my first book for St. Martin's Press, um, and God said how translations conceal the Bible's original meaning, I wanted to have two parts. I wanted to have uh, an introduction to how Bible translation works, and then I thought I would choose some, you know, clear mistranslations, and sort of work through them in detail. And one of the chapters is about something I never expected to find. I was teaching about uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and I always thought I knew what that meant uh, I thought like how hard could it be to translate the word shepherd we know what the Hebrew word roam means right. it means shepherd I know what a shepherd is sure. I thought and I thought it was a perfectly clear metaphor and one day I was looking through um, something called a concordance it was an electronic concordance which shows you where, all, um, where a certain word is used and I realized that the Hebrew word roam does not mean shepherd or at least it literally means shepherd, but this is poetry. This is metaphor. And the metaphor is not at all what we thought it meant. So a quick diversion. If I say to you, for example, um, there's a political candidate running who has hired a pit bull for a publicist.
2: Joel, I feel like we could go on for much longer, but we're out of time. <laughs>
4: where, oh, how <I'm> sad! <laughs>
2: where, where can people go? I know. Where can people go to find out more about you, to find out more about your work?
4: The uh, best place is to go to my website, that's joelmhoffman.com. It's my name, Joel, J-O-E-L-M, as in Manuel hoffman.com. I'm also, somewhat to my surprise, active on Instagram, uh, though not at all to my surprise. I don't remember my Instagram handle. They You can course. find me on Facebook, and there are links from my website.
2: Joel, thanks so much. We look forward to having you here in Arizona and uh, where it's much warmer than where you are right now.
4: I can't wait. Thanks so much.
2: When we come back on 2Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out.
3: The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470. 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470 to speak to a family advisor
2: at Evergreen. Call 520-888-7470. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with Me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Jeff Margolis, Emmy-winning director of eight Oscar broadcasts, author of the new memoir, We Are Live in Five, My Extraordinary Life in Television. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each Friday night for service in Onig Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning two 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, in person, and on our Facebook page. Our playout today comes from Israel, Benaiah Barabi's lovely song, Karen Shemesh a ray of sun. My friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace.
5: Don't go to the sun It doesn't turn to us <laughs> today Why are
1: Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.